One of our Lord's most sobering statements is recorded in Luke 12, 48, where he said, For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. In other words, we have a responsibility before God to use the many blessings and advantages that he has given to us. We have a responsibility to be a blessing with the Lord's blessings. The more we have been given, the more responsibility we have. This is especially pertinent to those of us who know the Lord here in the United States. We have been blessed in so many ways. Those of us who know Christ have been blessed spiritually beyond measure because of the salvation that is ours in Christ. But that's not the end of our spiritual blessings. In addition, we have access to the Word of God in our own language and not just in one translation. We have multiple very good English translations of Scripture. In addition, we have the opportunity to meet together and hear the Word of God accurately explained in a way that is applicable to us. I hope you know that these things are not the case for many, many others around the world. So we have a multitude of spiritual blessings as believers who live in this part of the world. But that's still not all. We have material blessings that most people in our world do not have. We have places to live, vehicles to drive, money to spend, even if we are going through financial hard times. Our standard of living is in the top 10% in the world. So we have been blessed in a variety of ways, and with those blessings comes a responsibility. To whom much is given, from him much will be required. God said it this way to Abram all the way back in Genesis 12, 3. I will bless you, and you will shall be a blessing. I will bless you, and you are to be a blessing. God was telling Abram, later his name changed to Abraham, that divine blessings are not to be hoarded. We are not supposed to be spiritual cul-de-sacs. We are not to be dead-end streets. We are to be funnels. God blesses us so that we can be a blessing to others. That's how things are supposed to work in the divine economy. The Apostle Peter understood that, and he wrote about it in his first letter, chapter 3. Let's turn there together, please, to 1 Peter, chapter 3, as we continue our trek through this small but powerful letter near the end of the New Testament. Hebrews, James, then 1 Peter, our text this morning is verses 8 through 12 of chapter 3, so please follow along as I read those verses for us. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tender-hearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. 
For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain or restrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. If you were here for the last couple of messages in this series, then you know that in verses 1 through 7 of this chapter, Peter has been discussing love in our families, in our marriages, as he talked about loving relationships between husbands and wives. Now he broadens his scope to discuss love in the family of God between brothers and sisters in Christ, But then even broader than that is the love that we should have for those who are outside the family of God. So verse 8 is the description of love in the family of God. And verse 9 is the description of love for those outside the family of God. But Peter doesn't stop even at that point. Verse 9, as you notice, takes it a step further by telling us how we ought to relate to those who are not only outside the family of God but who oppose those of us who are in the family of God. So here in chapter 3, Peter is basically expanding his circle. He starts with the most intimate of relationships, that between a husband and a wife. He broadens the circle to include others in the family of God. Then he broadens it to talk about those outside the family of God. And then he broadens it even further to talk about those outside the family of God, but who resist and attack those who are in the family of God. So that's how this chapter is unfolding. Peter starts in the most intimate of relationships and broadens as he continues to instruct. Notice how he begins this section of his letter. Verse 8, Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tenderhearted, be courteous or humble, depending on your translation. The word finally here at the beginning of this verse means that Peter is going to sum up what he has taught thus far in the letter. It doesn't mean he's done or he's finished. You can see that. He still has the rest of chapter 3, chapter 4, and chapter 5. But it's his way of summing up what he has said thus far. He begins his summary with five staccato or rapid-fire exhortations to us about life in the family of God. The first thing he says is that we are to be of one mind. When Peter exhorts us to be of one mind, please understand, he doesn't mean that everyone has to dot every I and cross every T in exactly the same way. He's not calling for a cookie-cutter Christianity where we all look alike, dress alike, talk alike, think alike. That's not the idea. In fact, If we all believed everything identically, think about this, then we wouldn't need the exhortations to unity that are prevalent throughout the New Testament. The fact that we are so often exhorted to maintain unity clearly implies that there are things about which we have different opinions and different viewpoints and and different perspectives. That's why we are exhorted to maintain unity and be of one mind, which means We need to work to maintain inward unity of heart. We need to have the same goal, 
to honor Christ in our love for one another and our acceptance of one another. That's what it means to be of one mind. It means we are to have the same passion, the same desire, the same ambition to glorify God, to exalt Christ, and to spread the Word of God. That is why several translations render this phrase, be harmonious, or live in harmony. This is basically saying the same thing Paul said in Ephesians 4, 3, where he said we are to preserve the unity of the Spirit, protect the unity of the Spirit. That is Peter's first exhortation. He calls on us to make sure that we are consciously seeking to maintain, protect, and preserve unity in the body of Christ. His second exhortation is to be sympathetic or have compassion for one another. This is a word that emphasizes emotion. The previous word, you could say, emphasizes more action. Make sure you protect, preserve, keep the unity of the Spirit. It's action-oriented. This word emphasizes emotion. It is saying that we are to be understanding of one another's hurts, sympathetic of one another's burdens. As Romans 12, 15 says, we are to rejoice with those who rejoice, and we are to weep with those who weep. That's true compassion. Genuine compassion rejoices with those who rejoice, and it weeps with those who weep. If we really love people, if we genuinely care about people, then we will feel their hurts as they experience the difficulties of life. You could almost say it this way, that this is really a call to unselfish living. I mean, think about it. When we are all caught up in ourselves and what's happening in our lives, then we really don't care what happens to others. We, we maybe would not say that, but we're not that aware of what's happening to others. But when we are unselfish, then we will rejoice with those who rejoice and we will weep with those who weep. That's the idea behind this word. It's a word emphasizing emotion, whereas the next word has more of an emphasis on action. Peter says in the next exhortation, we are to love as brothers. Now I realize that not all brothers love each other. I've lived enough life to have seen that, unfortunately. I know that not all brothers get along. But this exhortation assumes that there is a unique bond between brothers. I know my brother and I have that kind of relationship, and we would do anything to help the other in a time of true need. That's the kind of love Peter is exhorting us to have for one another in the body of Christ. This, this is so important. This is such an important aspect of the Christian life that Peter mentions it in every chapter of his letter. Every chapter. Back up to chapter 1, verse 22, he says this, since, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit and in sincere love of the brother, and here we go, love one another fervently with a pure heart. This was the first time Peter gave us this exhortation. Look at chapter 2, verse 17. He says, Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. This is the second time Peter gives us the exhortation to love. 
The third time is in our text in chapter 3, but he says it again in chapter 4. Look at chapter 4. Skip by our text and go into chapter 4, verse 8. He says, And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. And just in case we still haven't gotten it, he says it again in chapter 5 in a different way. Chapter 5, verse 14 says, Greet one another with a kiss of love. Love in the body of Christ, love in the family of God was so important to Peter because he understood how important it is to our Lord. From what we see in the gospel accounts, it's fairly safe to assume that Peter wasn't a very loving man early on in his life. I'm not suggesting that he was unloving, but the glimpses we see of his personality in the early days seem to point to a man who was goal-oriented rather than people-oriented. But the Lord transformed him. He never lost his leadership qualities. He never lost his leadership skills, his leadership edge, but he added the all-important aspect of love. The actions of Jesus and the words of Jesus had a profound impact in Peter's life. Peter saw love in action. And when he heard Jesus say, love one another as I have loved you, that riveted itself in Peter's heart and mind. He became a man of love and he exhorted the same of his readers. He does so in every chapter of this first epistle. Now back to our text in chapter 3. The next word in verse 8 is another word that emphasizes emotion, like the second word in this list, because Peter says we should be tender-hearted or kind-hearted. The idea is that we should not be insensitive to one another. We should not be callous toward one another. And it's very easy for this to happen. Very easy. Unintentionally, Unintentionally, we could be insensitive. With the busyness of life and with all of our various obligations and responsibilities, it's easy for us to become insensitive toward one another, unfeeling. Again, this is, I'm not suggesting malicious. This is unintentional. You just are so focused on what you need to do, what you need to get done, you're insensitive to people around you. So we need to guard our hearts and be careful. We need to be tender-hearted. Interestingly, the verb form of this word is used only of Jesus in the Greek New Testament. Only of our Lord. So this is basically a call to His kind of tenderheartedness, sensitivity. Then the final exhortation here in verse 8 is to be courteous or humble, depending on your translation. Again, it takes a conscious effort for us to be this way because our natural tendency is just to be thinking about ourselves, focused on ourselves. So we must make sure that we give attention to being others-oriented. These are exhortations about how we are to relate to one another in the body of Christ. And then in the next verse, Peter broadens the circle. He moves beyond that realm to those who are outside the family of God. He says in verse 9, "...not returning evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary..." blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. 
It is obvious that Peter is echoing the teaching of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount. There's no question about that. Every commentator recognizes that. What Jesus taught in that sermon had such a profound impact on Peter. So he echoed the same idea right here in this verse. We are not to return evil for evil, insult for insult. Now, it is certainly possible that this could happen in the family of God. I'm not suggesting that it couldn't happen. But it is clear, as we'll see in a moment when we go to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, that Peter has now broadened his circle, and he's thinking about our relationships with others outside the family of God, those who would be evil toward Christians, those who would uh, revile us for our devotion to Christ. We are not to return evil for evil or insult for insult. You know, it's very easy to return evil for evil and insult for insult because to do that, all we have to do is what comes naturally to us. That's all you have to do. But we are called to not be natural. We are called to live a supernatural life. That's what Peter is exhorting here in this verse. He reiterates what Jesus taught him in the Sermon on the Mount. Back up to Matthew 5 to see this. And let's see what, it, what is behind Peter's statement here. And what it was that had such an impact in his life. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 5. I'm sure most are familiar with these words from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. In verse 44, he says, But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Jesus began to address this issue in the same way he began each of these paragraphs in the Sermon on the Mount, and that is with the statement, But I say to you, beloved, that in and of itself would have been a shocking statement for the people of Jesus' day to hear. That was revolutionary. The teachers of Jesus' day promoted and supported and defended their views by quoting from the rabbis, by quoting from the teachers of old. They quoted the supposed authorities. Jesus didn't teach that way. He set himself up as the authority. It's as if he was saying, My father and I were the ones who gave you the law, so I know what it means, and I know its intention. Let me tell you what it means. In verse 43, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. You've twisted God's law. Let me tell you what it really means. So he prefaced his teaching with the phrase, but I say to you. That was radical. That's one of the reasons why the people were astonished when they heard Jesus teach. They were astonished at the way he taught, and they were also astonished at what he taught. What did he teach on this subject? Verse 44, but I say to you, Love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. If you are using the New American Standard Bible, NIV or ESV, then you noticed that verse 44 in the King James Version and the New King James Version is a, is a little bit more elaborate. All the translations are saying the same thing, but the New King James Version is more expanded in this verse. The NASB ESV and NIV simply read, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The King James Version and the New King James Version say, bless those who curse you, 
do good to those who hate you. In other words, when people say harsh things, mean things, unkind things, how do you respond? I can tell you how most people respond. Because it's not uncommon to hear phrases like, well, I sure told him. I gave him a piece of my mind. I let him have it. Some people, even Christians, say such things as a badge of honor. They're bragging about it, boasting about it. But that is the exact opposite of what Jesus tells us to do. He says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. How can we do this? When I ask that question, I'm not asking for the methodology or the practical ways we can show love for our enemies. I mean something far more fundamental, far more basic. How is it possible to love our enemies and bless those who curse us and do good to those who hate us and pray for those who spitefully use us? How is that possible? It is not possible on our own or by ourselves. We need the Lord for us to be able to do that. And when I say we need the Lord, that is no mere cliche. That's no platitude. We desperately need the Lord to be able to do this. And when I say that we desperately need Him to be able to love our enemies, I don't mean to limit that to the issue of salvation. What I mean is, even if we have the Lord, even if we have His salvation, that is no guarantee that we will automatically love our enemies. I'm sure I'm not telling you anything new. At least I hope not. I hope I'm not the only Christian here who doesn't find it easy and natural to love an enemy. We need the Lord and His salvation, and we need more than that. We need the Lord's enabling grace. We need the strength that the Lord supplies through prayer. If we think we don't, then we will be just like the Apostle Peter on the night before our Lord's death. You, you know the story. Jesus told him to pray. Jesus said, pray, lest you enter into temptation. Peter, you've got a temptation coming tonight. You need to pray about it. But Peter didn't pray. He slept. And he ended up denying his Lord multiple times. He could have had the strength. He could have had it. If he had asked for it in prayer, but he didn't. In a similar fashion, the only way we will be able to love our enemies is to ask the Lord and beseech the Lord and entreat the Lord for the ability to do so. Only a person who has been transformed by the saving grace of God and is walking in the Spirit, depending on the Spirit, can truly love his or her enemy. But not only are we called to love our enemy, we are called to pray for our enemy. Watch it now and be careful. If you're like me, you could easily think, oh, I can pray for my enemy. I can pray for God to strike him and judge him, and discipline him, and, or whatever else. But that's obviously not what Jesus is talking about here. It is clear in this context that he is exhorting us and challenging us to do good 
to those who hate us, not want their harm. In fact, it is when we love those who hate us and do good to those who hate us that we are most like our Heavenly Father. Verse 45, Jesus said, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Jesus is not saying in this verse that if we love those who hate us and do good to those who hate us, then that makes us children of God. No, it's not what he's saying at all. He is saying that when we love those who hate us, and do good to those who hate us, we are most like our Heavenly Father. It is a description of godly character. The phrase sons of in Hebrew thinking is sometimes used to describe character. That's the way Jesus is using the phrase here. Maybe you've read sometimes in in Hebrew Scripture as you're reading your Bible, it'll say something about a, a mean group of men. It says they were sons of Belial. And sons, uh, a lot of translations say Uh, Men of low character. It's talking about character. That's the way Jesus is using the phrase here. When we love those who hate us and do good to those who hate us, we are most like our Heavenly Father. We are mimicking His character because He loves those who hate Him. And He is good to those who hate Him. He gives them the sun to enjoy. He gives them rain for their crops. You know this is the case. When it rains in the spring or in the summer, it doesn't just rain on the fields of Christian men, Christian women. When the sun shines, it doesn't just shine on the crops of godly people. God is good to those who hate Him and despise Him and mock Him and ignore Him. And Jesus says we ought to be like that. We ought to be like that. Verse 46, For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? You probably are aware of the fact that the tax collectors were the traitors of Jewish society. That's why the tax collectors were looked down upon so much in the first century. Not because there was or is anything wrong with legitimately collecting taxes. Even Jesus taught the people of his day to pay their taxes. So there wasn't or isn't anything wrong with legitimately collecting taxes, but the tax collectors of that day were not above board in the way they collected taxes. They were thieving, bribe-taking, traitors, and extortioners who sold out against their own countrymen. They were men of low character, and they weren't popular with anyone in society. Yet, as Jesus says here, even the tax collectors... Love those who love them. Even they did that. So if that's all that we do, we aren't any better. Anyone can love those who love him. Even people of lowest character. People with no character. There's nothing special about that. There's nothing commendable about that. There's nothing praiseworthy about that. God won't reward that kind of easy and expected response from us. Anyone can love his friends, but it takes a special person transformed by the grace of God who is able to love his enemies. So in verse 47, Jesus said, And if you greet your brethren only, 
what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors, the the Gentiles, the, the pagans do so? This is emphasizing the same point as the previous verse. Anyone can greet or be nice to people who are nice to him, but it takes a special person transformed by the grace of God who is able to be nice to people who are mean to you. Do you have people in your life like this? You probably do. Do you have people who won't greet you or say hi to you or who will glare at you when you happen to see them or bump into them? Unfortunately, I have a few people like that in the community. If I wave, they won't wave back. Instead, they will glare at me. Do you know what my tendency is? My tendency is to think, I know those people won't greet me when I greet them. And I know they won't say hi to me when I say hi to them. So why bother? Besides, it's awkward being glared at. So why should I subject myself to that awkwardness? I'll just wave at or greet the people who will greet me in return. That's my tendency. No, no, I should say that's my temptation. And it's wrong. Jesus said even Gentiles can do that. Even pagans, heathen can do that. What Jesus is saying, even unbelievers can do that. But what do you do more than others? That's the question he asks here. What do you do more than others? Is there anything in your life or mine that shows Jesus has made a radical difference? Anyone can greet or be nice to people who are nice to him, but it takes a special person transformed by the Lord Jesus Christ who is able to be nice to people who are mean to you. As J. Oswald Sanders put it, the Lord expects from his disciples such conduct as can be explained only in terms of the supernatural. End quote. Beloved, we're called to a higher standard. In fact, we are called to an unattainable standard, humanly speaking. But that's the standard. And that's the reminder that Peter gives in chapter 3 of his letter. So let's go back to our text there in chapter 3. The words of Jesus there in Matthew 5 had a profound impact on Peter, there's no doubt. So he echoes the same teaching in verse 9, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling. And then at the end of verse 9, he says, not only should we refrain from reviling, he says, but on the contrary, blessing. Wow, is that hard. We are called to refrain from returning evil for evil, But stopping at that point isn't sufficient for us as representatives of Christ. That's not enough. It's not enough just to refrain from evil. We are called to bless those who show us evil. Bless those who revile us. Blessing them involves praying for them. Blessing them would involve looking for practical ways to do them good. Now, if you think you are really spiritual, 
Ask yourself how you match up to this standard. If you, if you think you're really godly, a really committed Christian, ask yourself how you match up to this standard. This, this really, really humbles us. We are exhorted to bless others because God has called us to inherit a blessing, Peter says here in verse 9. In other words, because God has been so good to us, because God has granted us immeasurable blessings in Christ, we should seek to be a blessing to others, even to those who treat us wrongly. Needless to say, this runs contrary to our natural tendencies. Even as believers, this runs contrary to the way we would naturally respond. But it's what we're called to do. It's how we're called to live. As, as we said at the beginning of the message, God blesses us not to hoard our blessings, but to be a funnel to bless others. But because this is so hard, because this, this runs cross-grain to reinforce the point to us, to motivate us, Peter quotes a powerful passage out of Hebrew Scripture in verses 10, 11, and 12, you probably can notice it in your Bible. They're either in quotation marks or in italicized or somehow to, to point out, indented to show that this is a quote. Peter says, For he who would love life and see good days, let him restrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. These words come right out of Psalm 34, 12 through 16. They basically support what Peter has just said in verses 8 and 9, without really adding a lot of new thoughts. It's almost as if verses 8 and 9 are Peter's commentary on Psalm 34, 12 through 16. Verse 10 reminds us to control our speech. Restrain your tongue from evil. Even when you're cursed, even when you're insulted, restrain your tongue. Control your speech. That's verse 10. Verse 11 reminds us to avoid sin and to pursue peace with people. Don't retaliate. Be a peacemaker. Verse 12 does add one key idea, and that is found in the first phrase, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. What's the significance of that? Why does Peter quote that here? Peter quotes this verse to remind us that everything we do, everything we do, all of our actions, all of our reactions, all of our words, everything is under the watchful eye of our Lord. He sees. He knows. We easily forget that. It's as strange as it sounds, it is very easy for us to forget about the Lord. In the, in the hecticness of life, it's very easy to forget about the Lord. It's easy for us to live as practical atheists. We do things we would never do if the Lord were standing beside us watching. And we say things that we would never say if the Lord were standing right beside us watching. But that's the point, beloved. That's exactly the point. That's why Peter quotes this verse. The Lord is right here watching. 
He's not out there somewhere, disconnected, removed. He's right here. He's always with us, always watching. And as Peter quotes here, his ears are open to our prayers. On the other side of the coin, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Peter doesn't want us to forget that the Lord sees everything. The Lord knows everything. He's aware. He sees those who live righteously, and his ears are open to their prayers, and he sees those who do evil, and his face is against them. So the point is this. Peter's point in quoting verse 12 out of Psalm 34 is, live your life before the omniscient, watchful eye of the Lord. Live your life with the realization that the Lord is right there watching. No one else may know what you say. No one else may know what you do. No one else may see your responses. But the Lord knows. And the Lord sees. So live your life with that realization. That's the way to live the good life. You know, a lot of people in our country talk about living the good life. This is living the good life. This is it. That's why Peter in verse 10, he says, For he who would love life and see good days. I almost titled this message, Living the Good Life. That's what this is about. You want to you live the good life? You want to love life and see good days? Then live this way. Because this is the good life. Contrary to what our culture may tell us, this is the good life. So live it. To the glory of Christ. Let's bow in closing. As you bow your head and close your eyes to reflect for just a moment, to meditate, to rethink what you have seen in God's Word and what you have heard, think about your life and how it relates to or compares to what, what we've seen in Scripture this morning. Remember that in verse 8, Peter started the, this section by talking about our, our relationships in the body of Christ. How we relate to one another. Being of one mind. Having compassion for one another. Loving his brothers. Being tender-hearted. Being courteous. Being humble. It's a call to make sure that we, we relate properly to one another in the body of Christ. And from there he expanded to talk about how we relate to those outside the body of Christ and, and those who would revile us and those who would make fun of us, those who would mistreat us. And that's really where the, the stretch comes, where the, the difficulty of living in accordance with what God has said here. So as we think about what Peter has written, let's think about his experience also. And remember that when Jesus told him, pray, lest you enter into temptation, he didn't. So there's no doubt that Peter would tell us, pray. Don't assume you can do this on your own. Don't, don't assume you can handle it. Don't assume you can live this way in your own strength. This is above the natural. So even right now, as your head is bowed, pray to the Lord. Ask him for the grace the strength to live life the way we are called to live life. Don't fail to avail yourself of the divine resource that the Lord gives us in prayer. 
And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, you've never received him, you, you can't live this way. You need Christ's salvation, first of all. You need his forgiveness. You need a relationship with him. And then you can draw strength from that relationship. So if you're here today without Christ, then I urge you, don't put off that issue any longer. Humble yourself before God. Call out to God in the quietness of your heart and say, I, I am a sinner. I know I deserve judgment. Grant me your salvation according to your grace. May Jesus Christ come into my life to reside within, to change me and make me who he wants me to be. And you don't have to say it that way. Just whatever's in your heart, call out to the Lord and surrender to Jesus Christ. Father, there are many voices in our culture telling us how to live the good life. But none of the voices rise to the, to the authority of Scripture, your word. And here this morning, you've told us how to live the good life. He who would love life and see good days. This is the way we are to live. Enable us to live this way. Strengthen us to live this way. This, this is clearly, we, we've seen, in, if we have any honesty and uh, objectivity at all that we've seen, this is beyond us. This is just not natural for us, even as your people. So enable us to live this way within the body of Christ, loving as brothers, being of one mind, having compassion, tender-hearted, and then responding properly to those outside your family. And may we do all of this for the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.